Well, this morning we are going to be in the book of Hosea, and we're going to be doing a little series here out of Hosea, and uh, I've entitled it Messy Love, um, and the reason being is uh, as we will go through the book of Hosea, you will see that um, the relationships in life that we encounter sometimes get very messy, and uh, even so much that the relationship that we have uh, with our Heavenly Father um, gets messy at times as well. And so here out of Hosea, this is such a fascinating book because it tells us about God's love. And it, it puts on display for us what God's love really is towards us as believers in Jesus Christ. And you know, who God is and what he is like are probably the two most important things that as we come to know God and figure out who he is, those two things, who God is and what he is like, really has an impact on how we live and how we worship God. For example, if I were to ask you a question and say, what is God like? More than likely, almost all of us would say, well, of course, God is love. Because, I mean, that's probably one of his, his biggest attributes is the fact that God is love. And we would all agree to that. Um, most people have this idea that God is loving towards us. And yes, that is true. Almost everyone in here agrees that God is loving. I mean, nobody in here would dispute that at all, that God is not loving. All of us would say, yes, God is loving. But yet somehow we seem to know that at the very core of who he is, God is love. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's undisputable. We, we know that. But how do we know what true love is? How do we know what God's love is like? Well, there's two possible situations to that. One of it is for us to look at human love. Now, all of us in here, we all say, yeah, I know what human love is. I mean, if you're married, you have a spouse, you're like, yeah, I love my spouse. Um, we love our friends. We love our sports teams. Um, go Seahawks. Right? Or Falcons. <laughs> I don't know. But we all have an a understanding of what love is. And we, we can all relate with a human type of love. We love food. We love coffee. We, we have this love that we know what we're talking about. But our culture here also glorifies romantic love. I mean, you think about it. You think about the books. You think about the movies that come out. I mean, there's the hopeless romantic and the, uh, the dork that is searching for love. And, and we all cheer and we're all excited when they find true love. I mean, our culture glorifies that. But we all think that we know what love is because we think that God loves us like we love one another. But the truth of that is that that's not the case. Sometimes we think that God loves more, like more than what we love because God is bigger. And so because God is bigger, then he must have a bigger love. On our own, none of us really do not know what love is. 
If we do not see God's love for what it is, we miss the greatest thing that we could ever know. The second thing that we can find out what love is, is basically through God's word. And through God's word, God describes to us in detail exactly what his love is towards us. You know, the Bible is not just a mere collection of of old stories written by old men. The Bible is God's word to us, and God himself spoke exactly what he wanted us to know about himself. And as we read his word, we come in connection with the love of God, and it's put on display for us. And we can read about that, and we can see his love in reality of what love is supposed to be. When we understand what God had done for us, then and only then we understand what true love is. And so one of, most, one of the most outstanding pictures of God's love is marriage. I mean, he went in great detail with marriage that in Ephesians chapter 5, he uses marriage as an example of the love that he has towards the church. And so for us that are married, or for some of us that are soon to be married, God uses the marriage picture as, a resu- as to show everybody of his love that he has towards the church. And here in the book of Hosea, we have a picture of marriage that God shows the nation of Israel. You see, God loves us beyond our brokenness. God loves us beyond our unfaithfulness. And God loves us beyond our sin. And so the love that God has for us is a love that we as human beings cannot even comprehend. So what do we know here about the book of Hosea? Well, Hosea here is known as one of the minor prophets, and it's not the fact that it's minor because it has a small message. It's minor because of the shortness of the book. It doesn't mean that his message was not any less important than any of the other prophets. Hosea gives us a message about love. He gives us a message about a messy love that was going on during the nation during that time. Hosea was a man of God. He was a prophet. And everything that happened in Hosea's life, God spoke through Hosea to a nation that was being unfaithful to him. So here for just a moment, we're going to take a look here at chapter number one. And we're going to see this kind of messy love that God displays and talks about here in the book of Hosea and how we can apply that to our own life. Now, we'll see here in just a moment the background or the context of that, but let's tell us a few verses here about Hosea's life. So let's take those here. Verse number one. Look what the Bible says here. In verse number one, it says this. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. You see, it's very clear from the very beginning that these were not Hosea's thoughts. This, by the word here, it says, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea. This is God saying, Hosea, I have a message for my people, and I am going to tell you what I want you to tell them. And so Hosea was being used by God 
to talk about a messy kind of love that God was going to show them and say, I am going to love you, and I'm going to show you the kind of love that I have towards you. And the Bible says, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea. This was God speaking to Hosea. Notice in this verse that we can pinpoint actually when this takes place. Because it tells us, it says, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. It tells us of the kings of Judah, notice that, and it also says, and, in the, and it also says in, the, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about that this was a divided nation. We have the kings of Israel, we have the king of Israel, and then we also have the kings of Judah. Here's just a brief breakdown of history here. Okay, you ready? I'm going to try to do this in like a minute and a half. All right, so you have Abraham, right? God calls Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. Abraham has a son. What was his name? Isaac, okay? Isaac has a son. What was his name? Jacob, okay? Remember, Jacob got into a fight with God. They were wrestling. Uh, he put his hip out of joint, and God tells uh, Jacob, he says, no longer your name is going to be Jacob, the surplanter, the liar, the deceiver. Your name is now going to be called what? Israel, okay? So Jacob has 12 sons. Those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. So you have the 12 tribes of Israel. Then what happens is eventually they go down to Egypt. They're down there during the famine. They're living down there in Egypt. Everything's going swell and great. And then all of a sudden, here rises a, a, a Pharaoh that does not know uh, Joseph. And he puts those children of Israel into bondage, into slavery. And they're down there for 400 years. So they're down there in Egypt. They're serving the Egyptians, building treasure cities. And eventually, they're crying out, saying, God, we want you to save us. And God says, okay, I'm going to save you. And he rises up, raises up a leader. His name is Moses. Moses leads them out. It's in the Exodus. He leads them out of, out of Egypt. And they wander in the desert for 40 years. And then finally, God raises up another man, and that man named Joshua leads them into the promised land. They're there in the promised land, and they start looking around. They say, hey, look at all these other nations over here. Man, we want a king just like them. And God says, okay, you want a king? So what happens? God gives them a king. What's the first king that he gives them? Saul, right? Saul was not a very good guy. In fact, he was full of pride. God says, all right, nope, 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 that's not going to work. So then God raises up two other kings, and this was the glorious years of the, the, the kingdom of Israel. And the other of these two kings, King David and King Solomon, the kingdom flourished like it never had before. I mean, it was great. But then all of a sudden, Solomon dies, his son takes over, and he is just not a very good manager of things. He starts making some really terrible choices. He starts doing some things that are not good for the nation. And all of a sudden, what happens? The whole thing just falls apart. It, it tears in asunder. And so you have a divided kingdom now. You have the northern kingdom and you have the southern kingdom. One of them represents ten tribes. The other one represents two tribes. And what Hosea is talking about here is he is talking to the ten tribes he is talking to this kingdom, and he's saying, look, there's some things that are going on in this kingdom that I am not pleased with. 
And so I'm going to send Hosea, a man, a prophet, that's going to tell you what you're doing wrong. And I want you to turn back to me, is what Hosea is wanting and is saying to his nation here. So we find here that during this time, God is speaking to Hosea. And Israel, now at this time, the ten tribes would last from 931 B.C., until 722 B.C. Because during that time, God allowed this nation to be destroyed. So from 931 B.C. to 722 B.C., God is sending prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet and saying, I want you to return back to me. My mercy, I'm giving you mercy, I'm giving you grace, I'm allowing you to turn back to me. And finally God says, that's it. And they don't turn back to the Lord. And so God allows this nation to be destroyed. And so we find here that Israel falls in 722 B.C. So that's the backstory here of what's going on. Now let's look at the interesting message of Hosea and exactly what God is saying to the people here. Let's notice a few things. So first of all, number one, notice this, a messy marriage. Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. When God describes his relationship with us, he uses many pictures to do this with. For example, a king, he is the king and we are his loyal subjects. Uh, he uses the example of a father, that he is our father and we are his children. But the best picture that God uses is that of a marriage. And so God uses this picture here of a marriage to describe his relationship that he has with his people. And notice what the Bible says here about this. Because here in Hosea, God is going to use this picture of marriage to describe his relationship with us. But it goes in a very messy direction. Because, you know, all of us have this, this idea that, you know, for example, when somebody gets married, we have it in our mind. We think, man, that's so beautiful. That's great. I mean, young love, look at that. It's blossoming and it's beautiful. And look, look, they're so happy. They only have two cinder blocks and a block of wood for a coffee table, but they're so happy. And it's this wonderful thing. But here, it's not so wonderful. Because God does something that we would not expect him to do. And notice what he does. Look what he tells Hosea to do. Hosea 1, verses 2 through 3, it says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Get this, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom. By forsaking the Lord, so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. God is using very strong language here because he wants to get our attention. He says, Hosea, he says, go get married, but go find a whore and get married. That's strong. That's a direction that we don't expect to hear from what God wants us to know. But he tells him to go and do this. 
So Hosea goes and he finds an unfaithful wife, knowing that she's going to be unfaithful. Knowing. He's going into this marriage knowing that she will be unfaithful to him. He knows that. He knows that there's probably going to be nights that he's going to come home and she's not going to be there. He knows that. But yet he does it and he goes and finds an unfaithful wife and marries her. He knows that she will be sexually promiscuous. He knows that this, that this wife of his will have many sexual partners. He knows that. But yet he goes willingly and finds her and marries her. I must admit that this is something that is not something that we don't expect to see in God's word. But why does he do it? Notice that little word there in the verse. It says, for. God says, I'm going to give you a picture. He says, Hosea, I want you to marry this unfaithful woman because I'm going to use your marriage as a picture of Israel, the land that commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. He says, Hosea, I'm going to use you as an example for this. Your marriage is going to be known to the nation of how I view my marriage with you. So Hosea goes out, finds Gomer, looks for the most immoral woman, finds her, marries her. And not only that, but it says here that she has a child by him. It says, and she conceived and bore him a son. You see, God was using Hosea's marriage to paint a picture of their unfaithfulness towards God. And if our relationship with God is understood as a marriage, then it's not just when we sin, it's not just breaking a list of rules that God has. If we view our, our relationship with God as a marriage, then that relationship becomes more than just breaking a rule. It becomes being unfaithful to God. And God says, I don't want you to look at this as me as just being some kind of a judge that sits on a seat and says, you're guilty. He says, I want you to view it as if I am your husband and you are my wife. And you have been unfaithful to me. God says, you have committed spiritual adultery with me. And he says, this is a messy marriage that I'm giving to you. You see, sin is very personal to God. It is forsaking him as our husband and running after other lovers. Sin is committing spiritual adultery in James chapter 4, verse number 4, the New Testament says this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see, we do not see our sin for what it really is, that it's in a personal attack on our marriage relationship with God. For those of you that are in here that are married or have been married, 
you know how, how important it is to have trust and communication and faithfulness within the marriage. Because if that's not there, the whole thing just crumbles and it falls apart. And God says it is so important that in our relationship with Him, that there's trust, that there's communication, that there's faithfulness. Because we don't want to be involved in a messy marriage. So why would God allow such a messy marriage? Because in the illustration here, Hosea's marriage, Hosea represents God. In the illustration, we are not Hosea. We are Gomer. We are the wife of whoredom. We are the unfaithful wife. And it is so important to see this. Because when God chooses us, it wasn't because we were spotless or pure or lovely. He didn't choose us because we were cleaner or morally superior. He didn't choose us because we cleaned up our act and pursued after him. We were Gomer. We were the whore. God always does it this way. Because in the Old Testament, that is how he chooses his people. Listen to what, according to Joshua 24, 2, when God chose Abraham, he was worshiping other gods. I mean, here's Abraham in the very act of worshiping other gods, and God cho chose Abraham to make him the father of many nations. God didn't choose the nation of Israel because they were great or wonderful or something glory was, was about them. In Deuteronomy 7, 7, it says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. God chose them because his choice was based in his love. Not in the worthiness or the deserving. And it is the same for us. God pursues after us in our unfaithfulness. Not because we're great or wonderful or glorious or, or, or beautiful. He chose us because of his love towards us. And so here Hosea is used as a picture to tell about this marriage relationship that God has with his people. Let's turn over to the book of Ephesians. I think this will really help us understand this a little bit better. Ephesians chapter number 2. Look at verses 1 through 3. Look what the Bible says. Now this is how God found you. This is how he found me. Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 1. Look what it says. If you want to mark some of these things, I think it would be great. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse number three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. God says, this is how I found you. I found you following the prince of the power of the air. I found you dead. I found you walking in, the, in the, the passions of your flesh. And he says, yet I still loved you. 
And his love is not based upon anything that I bring to the table because I don't bring anything to the table. God says, I love you because I can love you because I know what you can be in Jesus Christ. So God chose us when we were Gomer, when we were the unfaithful, when we were the one that was walking in the passions of our flesh. In Romans 5, 8, we know this verse, but God commended, he showed, he proved his great love towards us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. That is why we sing about the love of God. I mean, we just had a whole song set here this morning about the love of God. Where our sin was washed white, his love ran red. That's why we sing about it. That's why we praise God about his love. Because he loved us even though while we were in our sin. Let's notice the second thing about this. So not only a messy marriage, but because they have a messy marriage, notice what that messy marriage ends up producing. Secondly, we have here a messed up family. Look at Hosea 1, 3 through 5. The Bible says, So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now remember, get the picture. God is using Hosea's marriage as a picture to show their unfaithfulness that they have towards God. And now he's going to use the children as a picture of what he is going to do to the nation of Israel. So here it is. Here's Hosea. He takes Gomer to be his wife. They're married. She's unfaithful. And now she has a son. And notice what it says. It says she bore him a son. So Gomer bore him a son. So we know actually that this son here is flesh and blood of Hosea. And what's his name? Jezreel. Jezreel, if you look in the Bible, this was a place that was known for much bloodshed. I mean, all throughout the Bible. You can find time and time and time after again that this was a place where there was lots and lots of bloodshed. The house of Jehu, this was Jeroboam who was king, was from the line of Jehu. Remember verse number one, it talks about Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So he's saying, look, here's, I want you to name him Jezreel. And then he says, the house of Jehu. And God is saying, because of your sin, because of the sin that's going on in the nation, he says, I am going to bring defeat to the house of Israel. I'm going to use your son's name to show that there's going to be lots of bloodshed in the nation of Israel. And I'm going to bring a military defeat because notice what it continues to say there. He says, and on that day, I will break the bow of Israel. Now, they didn't have guns and cannons and, you know, I mean, they had like rocks and bow and arrows and swords and shields. And God says, I'm going to break the bow. He says, you won't even have a chance to fight. He says, you are going to be defeated. He says, I'm going to use your children as a picture of that. 
God wanted them to know that by the name of Hosea's son, God would use a military defeat to bring defeat to the nation of Israel. Jezreel was remembered for the bloodshed that had happened there, and soon that bloodshed would come upon the nation of Israel as well. So that's the first kid. Can you imagine? I mean, this seems like a really hopeless situation already. I mean, he's got an unfaithful wife, and now he's supposed to name his kid Jezreel, which is known for bloodshed. I mean, that'd be like naming your kid like Judas. I mean, who wants to name their kid Judas? Nobody, right? Or who wants to name their kid Herod? That's weird. God says, I want you to name your son Jezreel. There's a second kid that comes into the picture here. Notice what it says here. Verse number six. It says, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name no mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. Now, remember verse number three? It says that Gomer bear who? A son. Him. Look in this verse. What's missing? It says she conceived again and bore a daughter. Whose daughter was this? It doesn't say his. So you're saying, Mike, that possibly that this daughter that Gomer ends up having is that of an unfaithful lover? Absolutely. And God says, you have this daughter now. He says, I want you to call her, her name No Mercy. Oh, man, this picture is getting worse and worse by the moment. I have an unfaithful wife. My kid's name, he's all screwed up. His name is Jezreel. And now I have a, a daughter, and you want me to name her what? No Mercy? And God says, I'm going to use your daughter, I'm going to use this daughter here to show that I will have no mercy. I will have no mercy, have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Jezreel indicated they would be destroyed militarily, but now no mercy means that God will have no mercy on them, that he will not forgive them. Because of their sin and spiritual adultery, God would turn against them. Gets worse now. There's a third child that comes into picture. Notice what it says here, verse number eight. So she has Jezreel. She has no mercy. And God says, look at this. When she had weaned no mercy. Oh, now mercy, no mercy's running around like a little toddler. She gets pregnant again. Now what happens? He says, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord says, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people and I am not your God. What's missing again in that verse? Whose son is this? We don't know. It could be, it could be of another lover. I mean, remember, Gomer is a whore. She's an unfaithful wife. Could have been that Hosea was, came home one day and... Where's Gomer? 
She's not here. What do you mean she's not here? Oh, I, she was down the street. I, she was over there. Maybe she came home and she said, Honey, I got some bad news for you. I'm pregnant again. Did I miss something? She bears another son, calls his name, not my people. God says, name this child, not my people, indicating that you are not mine any longer. I don't want anything to do with you. Wait a minute, is this the same God that back in Genesis says, you're going to be my people, I'm going to be your God? And now he's telling Hosea, say, I want your son to be called, not my people. I don't want anything to do with you. Throughout the Bible, you find that recurring phrase, I will be your God, you will be my people. I will be your God, you'll be my people. And in fact, in Revelation 21.3, it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. But here in this text... All the hope has been completely taken away. It's been removed. He says, I am not going to be your people any longer. So just to recap here. God tells the people of Israel that he will destroy their nation through military defeat, Jezreel. God tells them that he will no longer have mercy on them and that they will no longer be his people. And God tells them this because they have continued in their spiritual adultery against him. Now, all of these are warnings because it just didn't happen right after he had these children. I mean, God didn't say, okay, you have the child, 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 boom, that's it. These were warnings. These were saying, listen, this is what's going to happen unless you repent and turn back to me. God says, if you don't do this, you will have military defeat. If you don't do this, I won't be your people. I won't have mercy on you. God says, if you do not repent, this will happen. But of course, sadly, we know what ends up happening. They don't repent. Oh, yeah, whatever, God. <laughs> yeah. They don't repent. And God does send a military defeat into that nation. Breaks them, destroys them. So is there any hope? Is there any hope? You see, when we are guilty of sin of ourselves and rightly deserve the judgment of God, where can we find hope? If we are to find any hope, it must come from God. And that's where this messy love takes a, a, an amazing turn. And if you read the last verses here of chapter number one, it's almost as if God is saying, I am through. I am through. No more. No more lies. No more hypocrisy. No more. I am through. I'm fed up with it. But then out of his love, he turns back to his people. And that's what's amazing about the story here of Hosea. Let's look here, number three now. So we got Messed up marriage, we got a messed up family, but yet God offers hope. Look at verses 10, uh, all the way through chapter 2, verse number 1. It says, yet, <laughs> love that, yet. 
The number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place, notice this, look at the heart of God as it turns. He says, where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. So yet God offers hope in the midst of a messed up, broken down marriage. God offers hope for his people in spite of their sin. Yet God will be merciful. This goes all the way back to the promise that he made to, in Genesis. He said this to Abraham. He said, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And as the sand that is on the seashore. What an amazing love that God has for his people and even for us. Look at the text again. Do you notice the verses in verses 10 through 11? Do you see what God will do? He says, the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, remember it's a divided kingdom. He says, the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, the two tribes. And he says, the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, will be reunited. God's going to bring it all back together. And they shall appoint for themselves one head. Who do you think the one head is? Who do you think the leader is going to be that's going to lead them and bring them back together? It's Jesus Christ. Throughout the Old Testament, there are hints of the coming of Jesus Christ. Some of them are very blatant. They're out there. They're right in front of us. Some of them are kind of obscure and they're not so noticeable. And this is so interesting because this was given a thousand years before Jesus Christ would ever be born. And God says, I already have this great and wonderful plan. I'm going to bring back all my people in spite of their sin because I still love them. And he says, I'm going to bring them back together. God didn't just say, oh, man, oh, yeah, that didn't work. Better think of something else. He had this plan before the beginning of time that he would send Jesus Christ. And so yet God offers hope. Sending Jesus was God's plan from the very beginning. God ends up taking these verses further than Hosea could ever know. Because in the New Testament we are told that God brings together not just the people of Judah and the people of Israel. But the Bible tells us that God brings all people Jews and Gentiles, every tongue and tribe and nation, he brings them all together into one. Those that place their faith in Jesus Christ, God brings them together and unites them in the body of Christ. So this is so amazing, yet God offers hope. So here we have hope, but hope requires two things. Here they are. Number one, that God has compassion on us as people. That God does not treat us as our sins deserve. And that's called grace. Even in our unfaithfulness towards God, God says, I still 
love you. And I'm extending grace to you. Secondly, that we must repent and turn to the Lord. Let me give you an illustration about this. Imagine a person whose spouse commits adultery. Man, that's rough. That's hard. And maybe we would talk to them and say, you know, we can work through this. There can be forgiveness. There can be restoration. And we can, we can, we can work this out. And the spouse, both, both parties are willing to work it out, and, and they work it out. But yet that same spouse commits adultery again. Boy, that's, that's hard. Maybe we could forgive one time and maybe second time we can forgive, but that spouse continually commits adultery. Affair after affair after affair after affair. Adultery after adultery after adultery after adultery. Nobody in here, nobody in here would say, I am going to stay with that unfaithful person. We would demand, and rightly so, say, I want a divorce from that person. Because they're unfaithful. They cannot remain faithful to me. God, in his justice and in his holiness, demanded a divorce from the nation of Israel. He says, I'm through. I don't want this. I don't want it. He says, I'm going to bring defeat. You're going to have no mercy. He says, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. You will not be my people. And time and time and time and time after time after time after time, they continued to commit spiritual adultery against God. But yet in his love, he stuck by them. That is a love that we cannot understand. And I have to think in my own life, over the past year since I've known Jesus Christ as my Savior, since uh, 2002 when I became a Christian, how many times have I been unfaithful to God? How many times have I went after other things than other pursuing after Jesus Christ in my life. And what does it get me? A little thrill. Woo! And yet God still loves me. His love is towards me. Even though I say, God, I got another lover. I got something way better than you. This was a messy, messy, messy marriage that God used Hosea for. And it's a picture for us to, to realize what God is doing in our life. Got one last scripture passage to share with you and we'll be done. Turn back over to Ephesians chapter number five. I hope you get the heart of this because this is God's love towards us. Ephesians chapter number five. Look at verse number 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without 
blemish. This is a love beyond anything that we could ever imagine. This is a love that the Almighty God, the Father, our husband, this is the love of our Father that he has towards us. Remember, we were the whore. God searched us out, brought us into his family, and time and time and time again, we've committed spiritual adultery against God. But God says, you know what? He says, I want you to be spotless. I want you to be pure. So I've devised a wonderful plan, and it's sending my son, Jesus, to take your place. And Jesus became all the filth and the garbage and the disgusting lewdness of our lives was placed upon him so that we might be spotless and pure before him. You are dearly beloved. We as a church are loved by God. And this love is placed, put on display through the love of God by sending his son Jesus for us. So have we been unfaithful to God? Have I been unfaithful to God? Oh yeah. Many times. But what am I going to do about it? Do I need to pursue after him? Do I need to repent? Yeah, I do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we had to look into your word. And God, what a what an amazing message from, from your word here about this love that you have towards us. God, none of us in here really know what love is. We think we do. We think that we got it all figured out. But God, then you go and do something amazing by sending your son Jesus. And it just blows all of our plans and our schemes completely out of the water. And we got nothing. We got nothing to bring to the table. Lord, help us as believers to remain true and faithful to you. God, you love us. You pursue after us. Thank you so much for your son, Jesus, that you sent for our sins. Lord, I pray that you help us as followers of Jesus to remain faithful, to not pursue after other things, other fancies in life that will distract us from remaining faithful to you. Lord, you are a lover. Help us to love you back. We thank you. We love you. We ask all this in your name.